Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, a partner at Thompson Hine and the president of the City Club's Board of Directors. I am pleased to introduce today's speaker, Vice President of the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of Ascend at the Aspen Institute, Ann Mosley. Nearly half of America's families struggle to make ends meet. Under an unemployment, poor adult and child literacy rates, housing and food insecurity, exposure to trauma and violence. These are all factors that can exist simultaneously and in relation to one another when describing a family in poverty. While research and experience has shown that poverty is a complex condition that cannot be addressed with a single solution, there is one model gaining national momentum and bipartisan support, the two-generation approach. This model reduce it, works to reduce poverty, not by targeting the kids or the parents, but the family as a whole. Instead of addressing the needs of each member separately, two generational programs work with the family unit, combining early care and education, professional skills development, parenting classes, health care, adult education, and other services to provide true wraparound support to both kids and parents. Today's speaker is a leader in the two-generational approach. In her current role at the Aspen Institute, Ms. Mosley directs ASCEND, the national hub for breakthrough ideas and collaborations that move vulnerable children and their parents towards educational success and economic security. ASCEND has been a national leader in catalyzing a two-generation approach to breaking the cycle of poverty. Under Ms. Mosley's leadership, Ascend has launched a national values-based fellowship program and is investing $1.5 million in promising programs and policy solutions. With more than 20 years' experience in policy and philanthropy, Ms. Mosley is serving, has served in leadership roles at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, the Washington Area Women's Foundation, and the Center for Policy Alternatives. She has been recognized as the Washingtonian of the Year, Miss Magazine Woman to Watch, and as a visionary philanthropist. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Ann Mosley. Thank you so much, Robin, for that very kind and generous introduction. And thank you, Dan. Ann Robin and the City Club of Cleveland for hosting me. It's really an honor to be here. Um, at an institution that has really treasured and valued um, civic discourse about some of the most critical issues affecting communities and families in our country. Um, as someone who grew up in Pittsburgh, a sister city of Cleveland, I'll say twins, equitable twin cities, um, <laughs> um, but also um, the Aspen Institute, which I think really um, has a, uh, a sister uh, mission in terms of trying to bring the right people together at the right time for the right conversation. 
Um, it's really my honor and my privilege to be here with all of you. So thank you to the City Club of Cleveland for the opportunity. Um, I also would like to say thank you to all of you for coming out in this weather. If we were in Washington, D.C., where sometimes we see one flake and people go underneath their bed, um, clearly you are hardy souls. So we are going to dive into a really fantastic conversation and really get into some big ideas and solving problems. But thank you all for coming. Um, and I really want to thank um, the William J. and Dorothy K. O'Neill Foundation for the work that you're doing and the support to make this possible and also partnering with Ascend. Thank you. Um, uh, we have a national network of about nearly 400 organizations that are grassroots organizations doing Head Start work, United Ways to state agencies um, that come together on this two-generation work. Um, we're really pleased to have 21 of those partner organizations here in the state of Ohio. I'm honored that many of you are here in this room, so thank you for coming. Some of you drove from Columbus and other places, so thank you for making that trip. Um, so with that said, um, I'm going to sort of jump in and take a little bit of time to walk us through kind of the topic about why mindsets matter as we think about the promise and potential of a two-generation approach. And what does it look like as we think about constructing family prosperity? And um, sort of lay out a little bit of what does it mean uh, to shift mindsets? What is the research, the science, the kind of momentum, the support behind the two-generation approach? Share a couple examples of innovations just to kind of get us going. And, and where especially do we see the power of parent and family voice and expertise making shifts that improve outcomes? And then really kind of hope we can go into a conversation here from you all with your questions about what's possible here in Cleveland or what can we also you know, sort of learn from the, the larger conversation. So that was my plan. I hope that makes sense and it sounds like the lunch you showed up for. Um, you know, one of the things, as Robin pointed out, I have been working on these issues for quite a while. The North Star of what I have worked on for my whole life has really been about how do we ensure that opportunity, what has been core to the American spirit, that all families are able to achieve their full potential um, really can pass from one generation to the next um, as a reality um, becomes, is, is, is true for all. Because in this work, um, from whether it's been working in rural communities, suburban, urban, tribal nations, I have yet to meet any parent that has ever said they want anything less than the best for their children. I have never met any family that has said, I'm looking for the best program, the best federal service, um, they are looking for quality education, learning opportunities, good jobs, income earning opportunities, health and well-being. And I share that because I think a lot of times in the policy arena, people can fall into the false trap of, it's like pull yourself up from that bootstraps, or it's like a full bureaucratic government answer. And we think about what does it mean to construct and build family prosperity for all, it really calls us all, all segments of society, to be part of building that answer. And so sometimes when I think about, if anybody's ever been through a house renovation or thinking about what it did mean to build a house, to think about constructing family prosperity, I sometimes think it's like building a house. You think about, it takes more than one person. You have to have a team, an architect, a contractor, a builder. But you think about the materials. You need the foundation. You're going to need early learning. You're going to need that stability of housing. You're going to need 
the windowsills of like transportation. Um, you're gonna need that base of like financial capacity. You're gonna need the glue of sort of healthcare, of childcare. But think about how it comes together when you're pulling together literally a house, all the people, all the materials for that to come together. And think about that as somewhat of a metaphor of what does it mean to build family prosperity. So for us, when we think about taking that and thinking about a two-generation approach, we really wanted to set a conversation that put children and families at the center. Because there's been a lot of great work that's been happening, maybe thinking about children, or thinking about workforce, or thinking about access to healthcare, but have we thought about it all coming together? And then, have we thought about that all coming together through a lens of equity? And have we thought about that coming together through intersectionality? And then also through the lens of families. So just very quickly, when I think about equity, for us, we very much focus about all children and families that are sort of living up to 200% of the federal poverty level. So we have a very strong economic orientation to break the cycle of poverty. Um, we also think a lot about racial equity. When we think about the disparities and when we think about racial equity, we think about that from an historical context, from a structural context. And there's also you know, circumstantial and situational, but we really take a long-term perspective and we think about the fact that 41% of children in the United States live in a family with low income. And we know the correlation of poverty to long-term outcomes. If you also go further and realize that 61% or more of African-American, Hispanic, or Native American children um, live in low-income families. That divide, that disparity, is something that we have to fundamentally keep front and center. So that's a really important dynamic of the work when we think about how are we thinking about closing equity um, and thinking about that from inclusion. When we think about gender, and I'm gonna use some examples about this work where you see how we've done a lot of work thinking about all families are structured, you know, can be structured differently, but at heart thinking about the outcomes of children and the adults in their lives. Um, you'll hear some father-centered, mother-centered different structures, but, um, but thinking about that work, coming out from really lifting about the voices of families. Um, Two-generation approach, um, just some of you probably very well steeped in this, but just the very simple definition is how do we address the strengths and the needs of children and the adults in their lives? parents, the caregivers, and however that family is structured. Um, a simple articulation of that is I look at one, there's a programmatic example, but it's an approach, but I think about a program that um, based in Minnesota, they're operating across the country, the Jeremiah program, focused, happens to focus on single mothers, sort of a two-year program, they work with single mothers, they've gone through a program where they have to go through an, a screening process to make sure they're ready. They are offered guaranteed housing. Mothers have to sort of go through a process of saying, what is my educational goal that they determine associate degree or a BA towards a career that has a sector that has growth opportunities. Their children, usually young children, receive full wraparound supports around preparing for entrance to school. They get nutritional support, parenting support, social capital support, while both mom and child are getting educational support within an intensive two-year period. At the end of that time, it is a high dosage intervention, but both mom and child are graduating or entering school into jobs 
with high paying jobs, high um, test scores, strong parenting skills and stability at a rate that is about a $1 to $13 return evaluated model. So I just put that out there as one example when people say we can't sort of solve these problems. There's a million different examples that are in this room and beyond, but just to sort of put a little bit of practicality to what we're talking about. Um, so when we talk about the sort of the research and the science behind this, I mean, we do too a lot of, as a national hub, we like to build the case for a lot of the folks, like many of you in this room that are out there doing the work, how to make sure we're always building like the economic case or building the brain science so we can be doing the best work. And I think many of you in this room that might be doing a lot of work on around early childhood, that the early childhood field was very wise in terms of really thinking about the building the return on investment case. For every dollar we spend on the early learning of a child, we're gonna see that come back later in positive ways. For example, if we spend a dollar in early childhood, that's gonna have a $7 return later, both in costs we're not gonna see paying out in negative ways later, as well as positive returns. We've seen with Dr. Heckman, a Nobel laureate from the University of Chicago, go even deeper saying, if not only do we do, we do early childhood, but deeper supports for the parents on their health, on their learning, as well as a child, we can even kick that return up to $13. And so that means also while we're embracing the child, let's embrace the parent at that time. And even if we think about the data about at those early years, for a family with young children, 3,000 extra dollars in those early years can not only provide economic stability in that key moment that might make the difference of saying non-eviction, stay in the same school, non-trauma. It also proves out that that child 17 years later can have a 17% increase in their, his or her own earnings. So this interplay between a child's economic and health outcomes is really profound and really backed up by a lot of the research. When we also think about the brain science, and this has been another really exciting breakthrough in the field that we've seen in addition to the two-generation approach, a lot of great research out there, Dr. Patricia Kuehl from the University of Washington, the Harvard Center for the Developing Child, has really brought to life the, um, the, the science about sort of what's happening in the early years of a child's brain. You know, basically 80% of the kind of core architecture of a child's brain is happening before the age of five. It's not all done, we still have hope. Um, but the core stuff is really happening in those early years. It's in a critical time of intervention. What we work with one of our fellows, Dr. Sarah Watamora, and her um, research lab and Dr. Kim at the University of Denver, is it's also a critical time for parents. At the birth of a child, it's also a time of biological and neurological change for parents. Actually, mothers and fathers, there is a brain development bursting moment that if we can think at that moment, it's fragile. Anybody who's ever sort of had a kid can remember, I'm like, how to get through it. But if you have, it's fragile, but if you're right there, it's a highly motivating time that I'm gonna talk in a little bit about home visiting, that not only can it be a parenting time, but it's a time if you get a parent at the right time, they're much more interested in 
access to education or ideas about job training because they're wanting to provide for their kids. And so I share these kind of breakthroughs that we're seeing around brain science and around the interplay around parents' health and economics and, um, and education that really have a profound underpinning about what we are thinking around um, uh, the two-generation approach. I'm going to share a couple examples about how we see the two-generation approach come to life. Um, but as I do that, I just want to underscore that the support that has been growing over the work that we have seen over the past seven years has been absolutely kind of astounding. Um, I'm someone who doesn't sort of shoot too low, and I, you know, it's always that balance between humility and boldness. But this has been something that it has been the bipartisan support has been quite um, profound. And I share that, like, our work is really, we play really, we're very focused at the community level and at the state level when we do our systems work. I mean, kind of a belief that when you're going to see things happen, it's going to be at the community at the state level, because that's where sort of systems and funding comes into play. Real choices make a real difference. Um, and we sort of lift up what's working at the national level. That's our sweet spot. Um, but we're working with about 12 states, um, connecting on the ground, family work, practice, research, family voice with governors and their cabinet secretaries, ranging with states from Georgia, Tennessee, um, Washington State, Maryland, um, North Dakota, very, very diverse. Candy apple red, super blue, purple, because it's a very pragmatic approach about putting children and families at the center. And that for us is really at the heart, wherever you're coming from, it's about putting children and families at the center. And actually just today, Senator Heinrich and Senator Collins have just reintroduced the uh, bipartisan bill, very rare in Washington, the Two-Generation Economic Empowerment Act, to look across federal agencies about what can we do more effectively looking at outcomes for children and parents together. And so I just shared, not always do you hear things about sort of policy that are transcending political lines that are putting children and families at the um, forefront. And it's just one where we think, again, it's not where we start, but it's, I think, one of those indicators about some things can really cut through and really get to the core values of what's the best of our country, I think, and the most important priority. So when we think about what does this look like, what can it look like to kind of the real work and examples of a two-generation approach at play, and also the mindset of bringing parents' voice and expertise. Because this piece about kind of coming up with answers that are informed by those that are the affected population is a really critical aspect of this work. And it's something that, you know, kind of was core to the start of our work 10 years ago. And we've actually started to realize this is actually a bigger deal than we thought. It's not sort of business as usual. And for us, it kind of helps equity and effectiveness come together. So um, one example, I talked a little bit about single moms as an example before, but I'm going to talk about dads for a second. So one issue, and I'm someone who's did a lot of work in my earlier career really focused on women and children, on maternal um, health and um, economic work and kids. And so I was doing a lot of work learning about fatherhood. And so sort of child support was an issue, for example. I might have come at it from the aspect of thinking, hey, dads need to really step up. Had to own my own biases and own thinking about that as I spent a lot more time getting to know the child support system, realized, working with some of our fellows and our partners, how flawed this system really was. As we looked at bringing a two-generation approach, learning with our partners, if you flip the script and sort of saying, 
it was a system that was set up to say, let's try to get the father reconnecting with the other biological parent. They're obviously not getting along. Let's reconnect this to have it be about father reconnecting to child. Different motivational standpoint. So many times, so hey, let's bring in the parent voice. So just using one example in Colorado, led by Reggie Bika, one of our fellows who led the human services from the public sector standpoint. But he wanted to take a look at this. So working with his department, they brought fathers in to listen to them that were in their child support program. Took a while to get the fathers to trust them enough to come in for a conversation, because they're like, you want to talk to us? Because usually in the state of Colorado, if you're in the child support situation where you can't pay, they want to take away your license, your driving license, your hunting license. It's not going anywhere good. Um, but to bring them in, as they opened up the conversation, really many of these fathers did not have fathers, did not have a job, and did not have sort of parenting skills and were not connected. By bringing these fathers together and talking them about their own experiences, connecting that with parenting skills, connecting them back with their kids, they can then build an on-ramp for them to connect and build their confidence and their skills about parenting and their motivation. At the same time, they then connected that with job training skills and supports. So they could bring fatherhood skills with job training skills together, build up that motivation, and at the end of this pilot program called the Colorado Parent Empowerment Program, they, within sort of an 18-month period, had 80% of the dads back to work, paying back to the family, and actually having a stronger relationship with the biological parent. All because they flipped the script and said, let's look at dad reconnecting with the kid instead of a different framework. And there's some work actually happening here in Colorado, um, here in, in Ohio with Commissioner Kimberly Dent, who's actually been trying to say, let's take a look at how we actually do child support here in Ohio that make dads more visible and more connected. So I just share that as one example if we flip the script a little bit about how we're thinking about doing what has been a longstanding kind of system, but do it differently. We might get dramatically different results. And those results were also much better for the mothers and for the whole family. Another one that I would just share, two other quick ones I'm just going to kind of hit quickly, but is when we talked, I talked earlier about the importance of those early years as really critical times for all families, all of us. That's such a great sort of time to be investing in family. And two levers that are really important at that time, one is home visiting. Home visiting has been a very pop, popular kind of bipartisan policy practice to provide supports for families um, and especially for mothers at that early period, um, especially with first children, to go in and provide parenting supports. There is some early um, um, kind of uh, research that came out of that work um, that said that for many mothers primarily, and this was because the research was with mothers first, um, but that they were actually, in addition to those parenting skills, many of them felt isolated, and they also wanted more access to more education opportunities and job training. And so we have seen some really excellent models popping up from, for example, in Indiana, the Goodwill Excel Center has started to look at how do we couple job training, building up cohort models between mothers and fathers that can be looking at job training, but then also leveraging um, home visiting resources to say, let's bring together, realizing the sort of supports and situation you're in as a, as a, new, as a new parent, but still couple that with access to um, 
educational job training or other kind of circles of support so again you're coupling that parenting moment and also the chance to be building up your family economic security moments as well another one that i would share and we've been learning a lot about thinking around the issues around um, sort of parental mental health and well-being and thinking about especially again in those early years around um, uh, infant and um, parental mental health and well-being. And so an area that we saw another intervention and innovation around two-generation approach has been thinking about the child's well-being um, screening and, um, and, and well-being visit. And this was something bringing together frontline um, doctors, pediatricians, and practitioners that were working with families that were suffering from a lot of high stress trauma, uh, a lot of factors, instability or poverty. And when they were coming in to screen a child that might have behavioral health issues, to not be able to screen and work with the mom or the dad, they weren't going to be able to work with the kid. And not to do it in a punitive way, but to really a stress reduction. How are we there? And so to work with bringing together some of the frontline partners that we work with, with some of the people setting systems and policies to say, let's flip that script. Let's let Medicaid or other public funding mechanisms support that moment so that the child can be screened and served, but then we can also open it up for both mothers and fathers has been another area where we've seen a two-generation breakthrough at a critical moment. So the last one, just very briefly, is on the adult lever that we're really excited about as well is how when we also think, and this one starts really a bit more with the parent, um, is really thinking about how do we also accelerate the success of parents um, post-secondary. And this is one, I think the mindset shift that we're always looking for, sometimes two kind of key factors on this. Sometimes people can be like, oh, we love kids. Kids are cute, they're sweet, nothing's their fault, unless it's my kids, I blame them for everything, um, but they're sweet. Sometimes when we, you know, we look at the parents, when we started this 10, you know, sort of nine years ago, um, we, we were, you know, early childhood, some folks would be like, well, are parents really part of the answer or are they part of the solution? And I think it's really important that we think about, for many of those parents, they experience what their kids have, are experiencing and that we are coming at this from an asset-based, resilience-based perspective and how are we investing as much in the parents as we are investing in the kids? And so when we think about um, post-secondary success for parents, right now one in four um, students in higher education are actually parenting while they are also in higher education. If you think about community colleges or maybe technical colleges, um, that number is gonna be a lot higher. When we think about all the data that we know that you know, absolute must high school GED, but the importance of credentials and competency-based learning and the need to keep building those skills is absolutely essential to any form of economic opportunity. They're absolutely on the right path. We have to be thinking about that on-ramp for parents. And those parents that are also on that path, they are usually working one, two, or maybe more jobs. They're dropping their kids off at school. They're thinking about transportation. They are juggling a lot. So how are we opening up a new conversation with those community colleges, technical colleges, 
systems and workforce development centers. So when they see a parent walk in, it's been a little bit of an invisible population. They aren't like, oh my gosh, this is a complicated population to serve. They say, oh my gosh, this is gonna have a multi-generational impact. I'm gonna double down. This is an even more exciting opportunity. And there's very practical ways. What are school schedules? You know, a lot of times, you can't do a class at nine, then two o'clock, then five o'clock, that's not gonna work. What are like sub-cohort strategies? Or what are design strategies at a workforce center? You can just have a playroom or just have a few toys. There's a lot of like really low-cost strategies as well as some other ways. So I just put those out there as a couple of different kind of innovation ideas that are both kind of, kind of simple strategies, but a lot of them require a mindset shift just to look at the world a little bit differently um, to get to some different answers that could have some profoundly different impacts for both families like today as well as for the next generation. So, you know, I hope this sort of lays out a little bit about kind of um, the work we've been doing, gives you a glimpse of some of the, the research and the science and the support, which I can share more about, as well as just some of the models that are looking at some of the existing kind of levers of change that are out there that are, you know, kind of working away here in Cleveland or in Ohio, but also across the country. And I, you know, when I think about the legacy and the kind of history in, that's in a, you know, a city like Cleveland, and I think of a state like Ohio that is um, an incredible, incredibly important country, um, you know, state in this country, you know, you have an incredibly important opportunity to be thinking about how you all put children and families at the center and what's the story you'll be telling, um, you know, for families today and what, you know, and what's the narrative you'll put forward. So one of the things that I'll close out with that uh, one of our students, um, we actually have a parent advisor program where they officially are part of all of the programs we do, um, coming to our forums and not just you know, one or two, but they come as a cohort. Um, we also are working on some models with philanthropy where we also compensate them as an economic model for their expertise um, coming in so that we think about there's credentialing, but there's also lived experience. We really honor that. Um, and um, one of our parents uh, really sums it up quite well to sort of up our game to no longer is it just good enough to meet um, parents where they are, but really let's meet them where they dream. So I thank you all very much for your time and for all the work you do. Today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum with Ann Mosley, Vice President of the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of Ascend at the Aspen Institute. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today, our Director of Programming, Stephanie Jansky, and Communications and Outreach Manag Manager, Julia Wang. May we have the first question, please? Hi, how are you? Thanks for being here. My name is Grace Heffernan. I work on behalf of Towards Employment on an initiative called Generation Work, which is about um, aligning the young adult workforce system to create better outcomes for young people. And one of the questions I have for you is if you know any best practice or strategy around um, serving young adults with children. You know, so we often refer to the youth work, the young adult workforce system as the youth workforce system, but typically they're young parents with very young families, and I'd just be interested to hear anything you have to say about that. Um, thank you for that question and for the work that you're doing, which is terrific. Um, 
we the, looking at the young parents this is one where we think it's like actually one of the like the sort of the the hot center of the two generation work and it's been great to see a coming together of some of the opportunity youth which has sort of been sometimes referred to as the disconnected youth um, where almost you know a third of that population are parenting and i think the most important piece on that one is how to make sure that we are really wrapping around fully to their educational hopes and dreams and making sure as they're getting their 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 sort of their tracking in terms of their desires towards the degree and the and the, the degrees or the credentials they're going for that they are really being tracked towards high sector growth opportunities is really important and so that sector alignment that has a growth potential is really critical um, on one piece. And that's um, from, you know, for one of the pieces that we're really pushing hard on this employment pathway piece, that it's connecting to good jobs, not bad jobs. And this is a big piece that is, um, I think we have to really um, stay firmly in this conversation about what does it mean to be on a good job? Yes, we have to do the good work, you know, the hard work to get there but it's got to pay off and continue to pay off. And so as one is moving towards the good job, that we have the right supports also in place for young parents. And I think there's a really, we're doing some deep work also with a, a couple of um, foundations and specifically the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as a health funder is starting to think about work very differently as a health funder. And I share that because how we think about the nature of work right now is a really important issue. And as we think about young parents, you know, right now it's a tight economy. Um, I think it's very important. It's low, um, we have very uh, low unemployment, yet I think we have to be really careful that it's um, not for everybody. This is another really important way we talk about data for um, populations of color it is a very different unemployment rate. And so when we also talk about opportunity use, I just think how we're tracking in this, employers are looking for how they're gonna be hiring. And so finding strong workers and giving them the support so they're getting the trajectory and creating those partnerships and organizations like yours that can set the table and build those partnerships, I think this is a really important time. Good morning, good afternoon. Does your work include trying to help get the parents and the kids to work together to support each other? Because I find if that can be done, the results can be tremendous. Like I've observed immigrant or refugee-owned grocery stores and restaurants where they all work together and they lift themselves up. Yes. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, the immigrant and the refugee population, we've seen some great models where in terms of how do they, um, they're one of the strongest and most highly motivated populations. And, um, and looking in, you know, sort of Casa of Maryland and um, which is outside of Washington, DC, how are they bringing um, models to come together, supporting within their community, um, both the civic education, but then also the educational and the economic piece is, um, a powerful piece and I think one of the challenges that we have seen especially for the immigrant population is a lot of fear right now and how are they also um, making sure that they've got the support so that kids um, especially with kids how they're making sure kids are still 
um, getting into school, getting into um, education, um, and not feeling, um, not being concerned about opting out. And so that's something that we have been really trying to watch carefully with different programs in the area. And, and one other quick question over um, for the toward employment. There are some different employment models in Michigan and some neighboring states. I can follow up with you about employers coming together in that model. Sorry. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for coming here and thank you for sharing the story around the shifting mindsets. As you were talking, it just took me to the history. It's almost been 100 years, almost a century, since E. Franklin Frazier talked about this. 30 years later, the Moynihan Report said the exact same things. And now it's almost 60 years later that you all are picking up the mantle that has manifested in bipartisanship with the Economic Opportunities Act. So I just want to thank you for that. And please share with us any advocacy that we can do here at the local level, even with our connections at the state and national level, because it's almost been a century. It was 1930, right? 1930, E. Franklin Frazier said the exact same thing. Patrick Moynihan said the exact same thing 30 years later, and now it's almost, you know, it's almost a century. And so this is so important. I don't know if it's really profound because we've been saying the same thing for almost 100 years. But the fact, the fact that we now have an Economic Opportunities Act that's pushing this work, that the Aspen Institute highly regarded for the work that you've been doing forever is elevating and amplifying this work. That gives me great hope for the communities that are in and around our community and around this country because we know that when families aren't completely served and you only serve one component of it, it's broken. It's only a portion of it. And so I just want to thank you for this work. And again, if there's anything that we can do to be additive to that, please let us know because we want to drive that. Um. No, I, I, I really want to um, appreciate that point, and it's something that I think is really important, and we talk about it a lot, that this isn't original, and that's a really good thing. It's about building on where we've been, and, um, and that as we continue to build, how are we kind of trying to also trying to push on where we have new science or new context and also new power, and also learning about where we've fallen short. And so I think there's a piece, just um, agree, and I'm here with my colleague, Sarah Haight, who also runs our national network. So for people who want to join in, we welcome that. And, um, and I do think one of the pieces as we look for going forward that um, uh, for Ascend as part of the Aspen Institute, we're probably one, we have a very strong orientation about how do we try to make sure our work is about being connected to folks on the ground and then taking a platform like the Aspen Institute to lift that up. And I think these kind of areas of how do we um, stay connected from both national to very local and then also what's happening in Cleveland, what can they learn from what's happening maybe in Detroit or Atlanta, um, or how do we think about um, uh, building this movement across different movements is something that's really important. And I think one of, at least for us in this work on that point, was um, this was always, a, this was about an approach, not about trying to become a new fad. And this was really trying to make sure if we think and putting children and families at the center. But I think, it, and it's, we really try to do that work too. It's got to be, you know, kind of lifting from where we've all come. Thank you. Thank you for this exciting intergenerational work. 
I'm a geriatric neurologist and a grandfather and a longstanding member of the City Club. And in that perspective, I see older people as a growing resource in numbers as in other ways. How do you see uh, the challenges and the opportunities of aligning programmatic and advocacy between the older generations um, who are members of families and the work you're doing? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, twofold. One, um, absolutely, we have seen on the advocacy and on the engagement front, we have definitely seen um, uh, for grandparents specifically, uh, there's huge interest and opportunities in working with um, organizations like Encore um, or Generations United that are very, very interested in, how to, and interested in how do we support both at a national level and within communities. So I think it is um, an incredibly important and a very real opportunity that's happening both um, across organizations and movements and then also really organically. I think it's a really, it's part of how families have been and are structured in terms of advocacy and then also how families are living. And so I think I just, I just absolutely. It's also part of our work when we've looked about the two generation approach just with different family structures where um, in many families we work with, we'll have, um, there could be a child and a grandparent because the parent might not be able to be there. Um, and very different, and just for that moment and the grandparent can be stepping in and that grandparent can be of any age. And so very many, very often we'll have forms in different sort of communities across the country where we will convene many ways like what the city club is doing here, but like in a place like Denver, for example, we'll bring commissioners and parents and families and practitioners together, and we will make a point to have different sort of family members, and it could be a grandfather and a grandchild and a mother and a grandchild talking about these experiences because many times they will need those exact same kind of supports because they're doing that work. So we try to do that in a multiple um, areas of ways. But it's been one where um, there's been a lot of great partnerships there. And I think being very wise about when it is about also really um, enlisting and appreciating that support coming from grandparents to advocate or to help provide support. And then also when they're in it, when they actually need that support, just like the parent. would like to thank you so much for this really informative program and I was wondering if uh, you've gotten requests to say work with like we have a women children's um, a women and children's hospital now here with uh, through University Hospital that does a lot of pregnancy group um, appointments mm -hmm. so you have uh, young women or not giving um, each other support and so on and I think the sometime it extends for about a year uh, with uh, home visits and so on into the homes after they leave their pregnancies um, appointments. But so I was wondering if your institute has reached out to like Millifori and, and the Bronx or, or them here, or they're sure there's others in the United States to help them implement something that um, I know they do get fathers for a bit but even helping them extend what they're trying to do and in, informing them of your great work. Absolutely, um, so appreciate that question. And my, um, my colleague Sarah Haight uh, actually does a lot of very deep work on, um, in that area. So actually with Montefiore, we actually, they've been one of our leading partners who we have learned tremendously uh, with and from there and specifically Rahil Briggs who um, led a lot of the work in the Bronx um, 
in that area now is working with uh, the organization Zero to Three on thinking about the Healthy Steps program and some of those early interventions. Um, to your piece, though, about how are we working with hospitals and those healthcare systems and young mothers and in that moment, absolutely. And I think that is one, when we think about, one of the ways that we work, we try to think about platforms for scale. So whether like early childhood centers or community colleges, how we're working with hospitals and health systems as a strategic partner is a really incredibly powerful opportunity because at the time where usually it's high trust, um, it's a critical moment. And so um, one of the areas, and so it's, it's a new area for us in terms of going larger. We've kind of worked with some front innovators um, where the um, United Health Foundation, New York actually has been a very interesting area with the Mount Sinai Hospital, United Health Foundation, some other folks, but thinking about the lessons of how are we providing kind of training and support in the hospital to the practitioners, be they frontline staff, nurses, doctors, to be thinking about interactions with the mothers especially, but also with extended family about how they are caring with the kids but staying in touch, especially when they've been affected by very sort of challenging situations um, to really change that culture so that it is not just the moment of whether it's just the moment of birth, but what's gonna happen after. Because um, every sorts of issues from instability to mental health and well-being really play out and how is it a, a stronger source of kind of support and continuum and also access to other supports coming out of it. So actually New York City has been a really interesting sort of hot spot of innovation, but it's one we're really looking to um, continue to build on, but also connecting to some of the health department systems and practitioners. It's a great question. Hi, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm Carmen Stewart with Seeds of Literacy. And I actually have a comment and a question. The comment really quickly is we talk about equity, but a lot of these conversations are centered around workforce outcomes, which I know is important, <clears throat> excuse me, because funders look at that return on investment. But 85% of our learners are below the eighth grade level, meaning that workforce outcomes are not really right in their grasp. So I want to say when we talk about equity, we need to also think about those people who are racially diverse but also educationally diverse. But my question is, in a lot of two-gen approaches, I think as programmers, we try to figure out what works best for our learners. What examples have you seen where learners are involved in co-constructing these two-gen approaches and what successes have you seen? Yeah. Um, that's a really great point, and I think, you know, kind of going to the earlier point about we're, you know, kind of citing the early work when some of the, the early two-gen work, kind of giving credit where credit is due, came out sort of during the Bush administration time with the Family Literacy Act. Um, and when I think about some of the uh, really looking at the interplay between, of, you know, kind of literacy and learning between um, parents and children, and I think one of the hot spots in that area, are the, um, the leaders has been the National Center for Family Literacy. Um, and doing that work. The you know, two aspects I would say are different models of looking at when and how we are getting into going deeper with the parents and the adults having the chance, whether it is everything from a workforce job training model that is everything from getting skill development training and say STEM related or even manufacturing where a parent is getting a training, but then there is a opportunity for the children to get exposure thematically in the same way in an after-school program that is connecting up 
in a way that can then sort of link those back with one another. Um, there are different models, and this would also go back in terms of like some of the um, programs that we're seeing with refugee and immigrant families, where ESL learning uh, programs, where we are seeing opportunities where sort of we can also do cross-mentoring, where children are also mentoring their parents in different ways on skill um, and on literacy learning. One of the critical breakthroughs on some of that has been how are you also, if you're working in different, and this is like an immigrant um, or refugee community, how you also have members of that community that are sort of the translator, like not just in language, but also culturally, and how we're also sharing that learning can have a profoundly different impact, not only on the families, but also on the institutions they're partnering with. Um, for example, um, like in um, Colorado, in the Colorado Mountain College, which is doing a lot of work with some of the rural communities, looking at how you have trusted um, trainers or teachers can have a profoundly different impact on abilities to learn or engage around literacy are some different breakthroughs we've seen. When we've looked at some of the, um, uh, the uh, areas around sort of learning disabilities or special learning, this is an area that I don't think we've done nearly enough on, but we've been working, whether it's with the um, folks around the U.S. Department of Education, but or other areas where there's, I think, a great opportunity to also learn from and also learn with um, in that area that parents have, their needs have not been nearly adequately addressed enough, but specifically around dyslexia and some other areas, we've seen some very interesting breakthroughs coming out of some um, sort of the research science field that um, we're hoping to actually learn some more from in that area. But um, the only other part on the equity that I would say when we're also going with folks, starting with where they are, if it's also, you know, sort of saying workforce outcomes that we've been pushing on, I'm kind of giving you a couple of tiered responses, is, um, you know, we have to be realistic where people are starting. So as we're on this workforce development conversation and knowing that at the end of 2020, all states are going to have to do a, re a review of their Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, like, hey, how have we done? And there are certain metrics that all states put out there. And I think it's important to be kind of eyes wide open about where are we starting and what was our progress. And so if someone's starting at an eighth grade reading education level, it's not, you know, got to be realistic about where you're going. And to say what are going to be, whether they're subsidized employment opportunities or what are the right learning or educational goals, and to, and to sort of embrace that in the right way is going to be a critical opportunity because there are ways to be looking at employment models while also having in continued learning employment models. And so we've been looking at in some of our work with employers, say, for example, employers like Federal Express or some other ones that have been, we've been encouraging employers to also map what are the ways that they are investing in their workforce where they want to keep workforce and that might be driving a truck to then going up and building like, hey, a FedEx franchise. They want to have workers that are building their skills. So how can they map skills that might be, you don't need a college degree, but you might be starting at a certain level. I'm not saying you're starting at the eighth grade level, but you might start here, but you have a way to start, but you can, you can continue to grow. Walmart would be another one of those that we're just, again, we're mapping and learning. So how you can do different kinds of public-private partnerships that can say, where are you starting, but then also where are you growing, wanting to go at a way that you can also be building your economic wages, but also your learning skills, but doing it in a way that it is a model, and you're also being clear about what's the investment, where you're going to go. And the last part I'll say, I have nothing, obviously, about this one, um, is we have to be, get really clear about workforce um, investments, that it's not about workforce participation rates. It has to be really what about the outcomes? Are we investing in people's learning or just about process?
Sorry, that was a long. How, how are schools and teachers involved in your activities, and how are how involved are schools and teachers in your activities? That is great. Um, so um, they are. So that's a great question. So we have a. So we have been. So they're involved, and we have different. They have the K twelve system has been. So we. Our core area has been in the education space, has been around early childhood and post-secondary. So we have done a lot of work in that area around, especially around early childhood, thinking about professional development and how early childhood, both how we're getting models researched and how they're doing the work with the kids and then working with parents, and then in workforce, how they're working around 2Gen, and then also thinking about how they're working with parents. On the K-12 system, this is an area that we have been responding to more demand and learning our way into. Is this kind of getting to your question a little bit? Okay. And I say that about the early childhood and the post-secondary because when you're thinking about sort of young adults, you naturally go to those systems. So when we think about getting into the K-12 system, um, which we've been involved, it, um, we've been learning our way in there in terms of working with the teachers, and superintendents that are saying we want to better understand the needs and realities of the families that we serve. So for that, that's looking at how are we thinking about models. For example, we have a fellow who is the um, head of the uh, Denver Public School System Foundation. And so they have been creating their models looking at financial opportunity centers in the highest um, poverty sort of centers uh, that the highest need centers, highest poverty um, concentration centers to the Denver public schools and creating sort of opportunity centers that will provide wraparound supports for families um, in tandem with the schools. So there are sort of coordinated wraparound supports as well as doing work to kind of train and build awareness around teachers and administrators so that they're more aware. They don't have to do everything because it's hard to be a math teacher and a social worker at the same time. However, you also, there are kinds of trainings and awareness that if you're also working in a school that has a di you know, district that has a lot going on, a teacher has to also be aware of what kind of trauma can be happening with kids in your neighborhood in different ways. So there's a lot of work when we talk about the models we're building around um, how we help build support models or help working with our network partners or fellows that are saying, hey, we've got a model like a, an opportunity center. This is what's happening in Denver. Can we share that model with other folks? Then we also look at the kind of research and models we're doing around like, hey, how are you thinking about trauma-informed care? So we're doing a lot of work on trauma-informed care, thinking about human services or training in that. But then how do you then share that where K-12 folks might be just learning about trauma-informed care because, hey, we have students that are coming in after maybe their brother was shot or something happened in their neighborhood. And there's a different thing I just haven't thought about. So we are looking to build some of those bridges and resources. And then the last thing I will share is the other piece, as a lot of the school systems have been thinking about implementation of Every Student Succeeds, how they are just thinking about the social and emotional learning. We partner with a lot of our colleagues at Aspen who are also doing, like their sweet spot every day is doing K-12 education reform. So building on their technical expertise, how do we bring some of this, the work we're doing around whether it's trauma-informed care or the brain science work to partner up and get it into the hands of their teachers.
Today at the City Club, we've been listening to a forum with Ann Mosley, Vice President of the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of Ascend at the Aspen Institute. Today's forum is the Stephen A. Minter Endowed Forum, which was made possible by generous endowment gifts from the five member banks of the Cleveland Foundation. We appreciate their long-standing support of the City Club programming and the way that they honor my late father. Today's forum is part of our Resilient Family Series sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation and the William J. and Dorothy K. O'Neill Foundation. We have representatives from both sponsoring organizations with us today. We appreciate their support of City Club programming. Community partners for today's forum are the Intergenerational Schools, Invest in Children, the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, and the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate your support and partnership for today's forum. Lastly, we welcome guests at tables hosted by the Centers, Cuyahoga Community College, the Literacy Cooperative, Ratliff and Taylor, the Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland, and Towards Employment. We're happy to have you here. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Mosley. And thank you, members and friends of the City Club, with special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us at thecityclub.org. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.